few weeks back, we started a, a little, almost like a mini-series, if you will, about trusting God when you don't understand. And we, we asked the question, you know, have you ever had somebody when you went to them and you poured out your heart, this is what you're going through, and they just came back with this answer that sounded kind of trite, you just need to trust God. And, and you thought to yourself, well, you know, that sounds right. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's ever a good idea to not trust God. But, but what does that mean? Like, what, what does it look like to trust God when you don't understand what's going on? And so we looked at a story in the Old Testament, a, a fellow by the name of Job. And, and, and we looked at this, this story of Job where all of this stuff is going on in the spirit realm, in the heavenly realm. But Job doesn't know it. And he's called to trust God no matter what. And things got pretty bad for him. And and we looked at what that meant and what it would be for us to trust God in a context like that. And then a couple of weeks ago, we stayed in the the Job story and we looked at the epilogue of the book of Job, which most of the time we read over. We don't even read the epilogue of the book of Job. But the epilogue ties everything together and gives you its meaning. And we discovered that most of the time, even though the book of Job is preached, that all this bad stuff happened to Job, and then he got double back, and he did, most of the time we think the, the double back came overnight. But if you read the text, it was actually a process of restoration. And that's really good news for us because sometimes, I don't know about you, but there are things in my life that I'm believing God for, I'm asking God for, and they haven't happened yet. And there's a process sometimes that we're going, and sometimes we don't like the process. We want instantaneous because we want instantaneous everything. But sometimes God is calling us to trust him in the process. And it's not bad news to be in a process, and it's not your fault if you're in a process. And, 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 the, and the title of that message a couple of weeks ago was, How to Begin Again. And so today I want to pick up where we left off there, because our efforts to begin again, our efforts to see restoration in our life, will not go unopposed. I just want to be very real with you today. There will be opposition to the process of restoration. And maybe you've experienced that in your life. And maybe you're feeling that right now. And you feel like, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. I want you to know you're normal. Well, most of you are normal. The, 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 the opposition to the restoration in your life is normal. If you have your Bibles, will, will you turn to the book of Nehemiah, okay? So that's in the Old Testament. Like you open your Bible right in the middle, it'll be Psalms, turn left, go a few books back. You'll get to Nehemiah. And, and I want you to see that God was doing a restoration in the nation of Israel, which is similar to what he does in our life. So let me just give you the context and kind of tee this bad boy up so I can swing away. Um, The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you guys aren't familiar with them, they actually narrate the last events of the Old Testament. Now, I know that's really weird. You're going, wait, that's not at the end of the Old Testament. Actually, uh, remember, the Hebrew Bible is not in chronological order. Okay, the Old Testament is not in chronological order. And the historical events that happen in Ezra and Nehemiah are the last thing that happened in the Bible before Jesus comes back. I mean, there's a 400-year gap, but it's the last thing narrated before Jesus comes to us. And, and, and Ezra and Nehemiah, though, in our Bibles, it's two different books, uh, throughout history has been considered the same book. In fact, it wasn't until the 16th century that Ezra and Nehemiah were made into two books in the Hebrew Bible. It was always Ezra and Nehemiah because the stories go together. And here's how the story starts. Ezra begins with the decree of this weird Persian king named Cyrus that the people of God can now return to Jerusalem and build the temple. Now, this was huge. 
Because the people of God had been in exile for many, many years, and they had been crying out to God, and God heard them, and he sent prophets who said, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to restore you. There's coming a time, I'm going to redeem you from exile, just like I brought you out of slavery from Egypt. I'm going to bring you out of exile. The time is coming, and finally, you get to Ezra, and and that promises of God are going to happen. I mean, imagine what this is like. You've been in exile, and some of you feel like you're in exile right now, and everything they ever hoped for, Everything they ever dreamed of, everything they ever prayed for is happening. This is great. And then they come back and they discover there's some rebuilding to do. Everything was in shambles. Have you ever felt that way? You know what that feeling is like when you feel like everything, not one or two things, but everything is in shambles? You you remember how that felt? Well, that's how they felt. And when you get to the book of Nehemiah, they discover, Nehemiah discovers that even though in Ezra they've come back to rebuild the temple and everything, it's not going well. And the walls are still broken down around Jerusalem. And so in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah prays, God, he repents, forgive us of our sin. And then he prays and God answers and gives him favor with his king that he was serving, which was Artaxerxes. And he gives him the ability to go back, Nehemiah that is, to go back and rebuild the wall. And I don't have time to read the whole story, but if you read the book of Nehemiah, you discover that God is involved at every junction in the story. God is at work in every part of the story. Now, that's an important thing for us to remember right from the beginning, because if you're going to survive any kind of building process or rebuilding process, uh, if you're going to survive the opposition that comes to you in your life, you absolutely must believe that God is involved at this moment. That he is involved in the whole process at every moment, even the dark moments. You may not always see what he's doing. The nation of Israel didn't see what he was doing, but God was at work behind the scenes. There is more happening than what you see right now. So let's go to the story in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. If you have your Bible, chapter 4, verse 6, Nehemiah says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Okay, I want you to get this now. This isn't just like half-hearted, you know, hey, let's throw a rock over here and see if we can stack it over here. Hey, these people are working with all their heart. They're giving everything they got, and they're working, and they're working, and they're still only halfway there. Only halfway there. And the enemies that they had weren't going, hey, nice job. You know, you're halfway there. Good, good job. Good, good show, old fellow. I mean, they're, they're not doing that. They get angry. And they begin to plot against them and they stir up trouble and and becomes a problem. And Nehemiah prays. And here's what it says in Nehemiah 4 verses 10 and 11. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Now, I want you to see this. Here's what happens when, when, when Nehemiah and his team and, and, the, and the nation of Israel, they go in there to rebuild. They experience and there's three things that they encounter in their rebuilding of the wall. And I think you'll agree, it's the same things that we encounter when we're building in our lives, right? Number one is fatigue. Fatigue. If you're taking notes, this is important to write down. They said the strength of the laborers is giving out. See, it's hard to build. 
When you're, it's, it's hard work to rebuild. I, I mean, I've never built a great big wall like around the city, you know, but, but one time we have a privacy fence in our backyard. And we had a storm like, I don't know, was, I don't know last year sometime, and part of the fence fell down, and we had to rebuild the six-foot wood privacy fence. And we were out there, and I thought we had been there out there all day. I looked at my watch. It had been 20 minutes. And that's rebuilding a six-foot wood privacy fence, okay? This is, this is, I mean, it takes a lot of, it's exhausting to build something of significance, anything. If you're going to build a family, if you're going to build a marriage, if you're going to build a church, some of you are building a business, you're building a company or whatever, a vision or a dream, it's going to take time to build if it's significant. Have you ever heard the phrase, Rome wasn't built in a day? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase, Rome wasn't built in a day. Okay, I'm told it comes from medieval uh, French literature, which I'll take their word for that because I don't know anything about medieval French literature. Uh, but the point is that very few things are built in a day if they are significant. You know, one of my favorite um, uh, things to read about, and I have several books in my library about medieval cathedrals. I'm just fascinated by the, by the theology that's involved in the architecture of medieval cathedrals and things like that. And, and, and in my reading, one of the things I've discovered is that when, when a city in Europe um, and the, the, the Catholic Church decided they're going to build this great cathedral, um, the first thing, you know what the first thing they would do was? Not hire the architect, not dig the footer. The very, if they decided they're going to build a cathedral uh, in, in medieval period, the first thing they did was plant a forest. Because they knew this was going to take, not a couple of years, this was going to take generations. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, St. Peter's Basilica. You'll see a, a couple of pictures up here. St. Peter's Basilica, kind of a famous uh, cathedral, was uh, begun in the year 1506. It was completed in the year 1626. 120 years to build that sucker. Which means the guy who drew up the plans, the guy who laid the footer, wasn't alive when he got to see the finished product. In fact, his kid probably wasn't alive. It was probably his grandkid or his great-grandkid who got to see it. And we don't think about this building generationally. But this is when you're going to build something significant that's going to last, it's going to take a while. And what happens is when you're in a long-term building or rebuilding in your life or you're in a spiritual battle, fatigue often sets in. And here's what I think, here's what I know. There's some of you here today, you've been in a spiritual battle for a long time and fatigue is starting to set in and, and, and you think, wait, what's wrong with me? What, what's I, I want to say, there's nothing wrong with you. And, and, and if that's you, I don't have any condemnation for you. I just want to say, welcome to the club. Because no one is immune from the effects of fatigue. And when you get fatigued, you start seeing things differently. I mean, that's what happened here in Nehemiah. They have been doing great. They've been working with all their heart, but they get fatigued. The, the, the strength of the laborers is worn out. And what do they do? They say, There's, we can't do it. They begin to say, when you get fatigued, you begin to see things differently. When, I, when, you know, when I'm not, I've shared with you before, there are times where I've gone through battles of, of not sleeping a lot. When, I, when I'm not sleeping a lot and, and I go through one of those periods, I start seeing things differently. Sometimes, I, and this is going to come as something of a shock to some of you, but sometimes I, I can be a little over the top, a little dramatic sometimes. And when I'm not sleeping, it gets a lot worse. It really does. I can, I can see, but why? Because it affects how I see things and how I process things. And so, and so I don't care how spiritual you think you are. 
you need rest and refreshing if you're going to build something significant. you got to take that. This is not optional. You say, well, that's not very spiritual. This is very spiritual. That you take time to rest and, and refresh because this is one of the things. If you're going to build something, one of the things that's going to come and get you is fatigue. Number two is discouragement. That's what they said. They said, listen, it's too much. They get fatigued, and in their fatigue, they say, there's too much rubble. They get discouraged because they've been working with all of their heart, and they're only halfway there. And so they lose heart. You ever been there? Where you've been working? Throwing everything at it? You've been working with all your heart, and you're not there, and you get discouraged? The word discourage uh, means to deprive of courage or confidence. It means to dishearten. See, the word courage comes from the Latin word core, which means heart, right? So when you encourage somebody, what are you doing? You're putting heart in them. When you discourage them, you are depriving them of courage or you're trying to take their heart. Satan wants to take your heart. In fact, one of Satan's greatest weapons to keep you from building in your life is discouragement. And here's what I believe, and even as I was praying about this uh, this week, and I know this is a super simple message. I know, in fact, I, I, last night I was I was sitting there uh, talking to Marlene, just saying, "This is I'm kind of embarrassed how simple this message is." And and a friend texts the very verse out of Nehemiah that we're getting ready to get to, while we're sitting there talking about it. And so what I took from that was the Lord was saying it might be super simple, but I'm speaking to somebody. So somebody is here today and God has arrested this service to say to you, I know you're discouraged and I'm going to speak life into you. Satan is trying to take your heart. Don't let him. You're not alone. So they've had fatigue. They, they met discouragement. And number three is intimidation. The, the, the enemy said uh, that he said, listen, we're, we're going to come. We're going to kill you. You don't even see us coming. And then to add insult to injury in verse 3, uh, they start talking like smack to each other. They're like, man, what your building is so weak? If a fox climbed on it, the whole stone wall would break down. This is like ancient Near Eastern trash talk. <laughs> you so ugly. That whatever. What are they trying to do? They're trying to intimidate them. Intimidation. You know what the word intimidate means? It means to inspire with fear. That's what it means to intimidate, to inspire with fear. And fear is another one of Satan's tools. It's one of his strategies in, his, in, in, in our lives because if Satan can get us to be controlled by fear, you know what fear does? Fear makes you focus on yourself and it makes you make bad decisions because fear is a liar. Just like where it comes from, Satan is a liar. And so he tries to put this fear into us and it lies to us and it makes us make bad decisions. So if you're going to build something in life or rebuild something, these are the things we're going to face. Fatigue, discouragement, intimidation, and that's a tough place to be when all the walls are broken down. So what do we do? What, 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 what did Nehemiah do? Look at, the, look at this verse, verse 14. And this is the key right here. Nehemiah 4, 14, Nehemiah says, After I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, and this is going to be his William Wallace Braveheart speech, okay? This is like, you know, before the Battle of Sterling, you know, paint his face blue. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. You, you remember that? Raise your hand if you remember what I'm talking about, because some of you look at me like I'm weird. Okay. This is, but this is better because this is Bible. Here's what he says. 
to everybody. He gets them together and he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's how we respond. So listen, if you're here today and you're, and you're experiencing fatigue or discouragement or intimidation, here is how we respond. Here's how they responded. Here's how we respond. Number one, don't be afraid of them. So if the enemy's trying to intimidate you, the very first thing Nehemiah says is don't be scared. Don't be afraid of them. You know, basically every single time in the Bible when an angel shows up or God speaks to somebody, the first thing they got to say is don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because they terrified. And in fact, I'm told by people who count such things, I, I don't, but, but people who do count such things, I'm told that there are 365 times in the Bible where it says fear not or don't be afraid, which would be one for every single day of the year. Well, I guess it was 365 and a quarter, but you, you get my point. There must be a reason. Why? Because Satan's, one of his biggest tactics is just shock and awe. Just pop something at you and get you to be afraid. But if you refuse to be afraid, if you say, I'm not going to be afraid, then you win round one. You get to win. If you just say, you know what? No, I'm not. You know what? I know you're trying to make me terrified. I'm not afraid. You win round one. Now, let me just say, let me be very honest here. Fear makes a whole lot of sense if there's no God. Actually, I saw a t-shirt a couple years back that says, uh, if you are not utterly terrified, you aren't paying attention. And to be honest with you, with the way our world is today, if there wasn't a God, I would wear that t-shirt. But Nehemiah says here, they're trying to intimidate us. Don't be afraid. And that brings them to number two. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Listen, we get in trouble when we forget God, when we leave him out of the equation. Do you remember the story in Numbers chapter 13? Numbers 13, there's this, uh, uh, the nation of Israel, you know, they've been brought out through the desert. They're going to get the right on the edge of the promised land, and they're sending in spies. They're sending in 12 spies to go in and spy out the land. Do you remember this? And, and, and Joshua and Caleb, there's two guys, they come back with a certain report, and there's 10 other guys who came back with a, a different report. Actually, factually, the reports were basically the same. There's giants in the land, the land swallows them up, but there's great big grapes and, you know, fruits and all this kind of stuff, and all of it. And they had the basic, the same report, but 10 of them said, there's giants, we can't do it, we can't go in there. And Joshua and Caleb said, there's giants, let's go kill them. Now, here's what I find fascinating. The Bible says that the ten gave an evil report. Now, here's what I find fascinating. Factually, it was the same report. Here's the giants in the land. The land swallows people up. All of those kind of things. The difference was Joshua and Caleb says, we got one more factor in our equation, and that is God is bigger than those giants. And it wasn't just they said, hey, they came back with a weaker report. It was, the Bible calls it, an e- well, some translations evil, some translations a bad report. Why? Because they viewed the situation as if God did not exist. It's called practical atheism. Or functional atheism. And, and it's when we say that we believe in God, but we live as if he isn't real. Craig Rochelle wrote a book entitled Christian Atheism. 
or the Christian atheist. You know, it seems like, what? You can't be a Christian atheist. Well, a Christian atheist is just one who says they believe in God, but they trust more in money than in God. A Christian atheist is one who, who believes in God, but they're controlled by their past. They believe in God, but not in prayer. You see, sometimes we do this. So sometimes we can, and listen, let, let me not say, let me say sometimes I can do this. I can get up here and I can preach and I can talk about God. And then later I can go out there and live as if there isn't one. And, and God is calling us to remember him. Remember the Lord who is good. Don't ever, ever look at your situation without God in the equation. Remember the Lord. Who is, and he, and he says right here, who is great and awesome. And then he unpacks what that great and awesome is later on in chapter 9 when he's praying. He says this in verse 5. Just listen to this. He says, blessed be your glorious name and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. This is the God we're supposed to remember. Not just any old puny God, okay? This is the almighty God, whose power knows no end, who has, there is nothing he cannot, nothing is impossible with him. He made the heavens. And all that's in them, he made the earth and everything that's in the earth. He made the sea and everything that's in the seas. And everything that lives, here's what Nehemiah says, everything that lives, lives because God gave it breath. Think about that. The reason you exist is that God gave you life. He made you to love you. The reason, the last breath you just took, you, you took it because he gave it to you. And that's the God we serve. Think about that. You know what Isaiah 40 says? I love, I love this. this. is one of my favorite. You, you've heard me kind of mention this verse before. It says, Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He said, this is the God who not only created the stars, but marches them out and calls them by name. Yeah, think about that. I mean, basically, according to that verse, every star has a number and a name. You know, it's like 648,291,194,000,003. Bob. Or Shaniqua. Or Antonio. I, 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 why? Why, 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 do you, why do you think? Why do you, why do you think every star has a name? I think I think it's because, as as John Piper says, it's so he can call them and tell them what to do. They obey him. The stars in their pathways around the galaxies obediently shine. This is the God we're talking about. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He's so great. The stars obey him. And this is who we're talking about. 
And no matter, you know what that means? That means that no matter what situation you're in, no matter what situation I'm in, no matter what I face, I have a God who's greater. In your situation, no matter how hard it is, how dark, how impossible, God is greater. His name is above every other name. We talked about the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power. Listen, the name of Jesus is greater than the name cancer. The name of Jesus is is greater than, than HIV. The name of Jesus is greater than diabetes. It's greater than bankruptcy. It's greater than divorce. It's greater than depression. It's greater than whatever darkness you're facing today. The name of Jesus is above that name. And that's part of what it means to remember the Lord. But it's not just remember that he's there. Invite him into the situation. Believe he's there and then begin to see the situation differently. Now I understand. That's way easier to preach than it is to do. I, I, listen, I'm first in that line. That's what we got to do. Remember the Lord who is great. And then he says, and awesome. So it's not just that he's great as in he's powerful, but his character is awesome. And look at, and I'll just kind of read you some verses from Nehemiah 9, because in this prayer, he's given the history of Israel, right? And he says, look, we were in slavery, but you brought us out, verse 17. Um, and and the, they, they became, that is, Israel became stiff-necked. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But... You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf. What a, what a beautiful thing. There they are in rebellion. And, and he said, you're forgiving God. So what does he do? He forgives them. Very next verse. They turned back away from it. And then it says, verse 19, because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them in the desert. And then he brings them out of the desert into the promised land and they fall again. Verse 27, and when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But what they do, they sinned again. So verse 28, and when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time what in the world verse 31 uh, they fall again and here they are in exile and they're going to come back out of exile but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them for you are a gracious and merciful is anybody seeing a theme here remember the lord who is great and also great he has the power to do what you need him to do. He, he is great. He's also awesome. He has the character. He has the compassion. He has the mercy that even though you failed, he's still there. I mean, Israel failed over and over again, and, and God remained faithful to his covenant of love. Remember God. Remember, put your eyes on him. Remember his faithfulness, his goodness, and the times that he's been with you. And I just, I just feel like there's maybe many of us here today, we just need... Stop and remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then the third thing he says is, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And number three, fight. Fight. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your, your wives, and your homes. You've got to Fight. Because in this story, the rebuilding of the wall doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't happen by itself. The opposition doesn't just go away. You've got to fight. 
But here's what I find fascinating. Six verses later, just six verses later, this is verse 14, right? Six verses later in verse 20, here's what Nehemiah says, because they were spread out along the wall, and they said, when we blow a trumpet, you need to come over here. They said, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Look at the next sentence. Our God will fight for us. Oh, wait a second. Verse 14, he's telling us to fight. Fight! And in verse 20, he says, God's going to fight. Now, which is it, Nehemiah? Which is it? Do I got to fight? Or is God going to fight? And the answer is, yes. But, but well, wait, wait, wait a second, Nehemiah. It, it, you know, this is not a yes or no question. This is a either or. Is it, do I fight? Or is God going to fight? And Nehemiah is saying, yes. Both of those are true. See, see, some people focus on the we fight thing, right? They, and and they kind of have what we might call a Rambo spirituality, right? Because and you ever heard people say, "If it's to be, it's up to me." You ever heard that kind of that mentality? If it's to be, in other words, unless if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And 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 they think they take that even into spirituality, and they put the pressure on on themselves. I got to make things happen. If it's to be, it's up to me. And if you do that, you're going to live life with a lot of stress. If it's 100% up to you. On the other hand, some people focus on the God fights for us part. And they say, all you've got to do is rest and wait. But then they never take initiative or they never seek growth or progress. and never take a risk or even try anything. And a lot of times in life, when you don't do anything, nothing happens. <laughs> so Nehemiah is saying it's a paradox. It's a paradox. Here, and here's the paradox. We fight. But it's God that fights. So they're, they're building this wall. They, they, they got the tool in one hand to build the wall, and they got a sword in the other. And they're ready to fight, knowing that they fight, but it's God that fights. In other words, we have a role to play, but it's not our power. It's not our strength. We're not the ones that are going to change the world. It's God changing the world, but we got to fight. And I believe that the Spirit of God is calling us as a church, corporately, and as individuals, not to give up, but to fight. I believe this is a prophetic call. I, I heard a prophetic call in the, in the, when we were singing, um, uh, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. Did you feel that? That there, were, there was a prophetic call that, that there is power in that name to break every chain. And I believe there's a call, a prophetic call to us today to stand up and fight, but know that God's fighting. Don't be intimidated. Don't quit. And if you're here today and you're just on the edge of giving up and quit, don't quit. God will fight. You just got to pick up your sword. So if you're facing opposition today in whatever you're building, whatever God has called you to build or rebuild in your life, just remember, remember these things that Nehemiah said. I believe it's the word of the Lord to us. Number one, don't be afraid of them. Just reject fear right now. Am I going to be afraid? Number two, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And number three, fight. And when you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, it's kind of weird, really, because they finished the wall like in chapter 6, but the work isn't finished. They finished the wall, but Jerusalem still needs to be rebuilt, and there's more than just external walls in the temple to be rebuilt. The internal heart of the nation needs to be rebuilt. And, and the story, the, Nehemiah, it's kind of, when you read the end of it, it's kind of anticlimactic. It's actually, I was rereading it last week again, and I was thinking, I, I, I could have wrote a better ending than this. 
because, you know, Nehemiah is like still dealing with problems. I'm like, it's, it's pretty rough. You get towards the end and he says, you know, these people had a you know, bad attitude, so I beat them up and ripped their hair out. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I don't know if we should hold him up as an example at New Life Church. That's what he did. He said he beat some guys and ripped their hair out. It's not very Christ-like, I don't think. So it's weird. It's bizarre. You get to the end and there's all these problems until you realize, wait a second, this is one of the last events of the Old Testament. This is just setting the stage for Jesus. You see, the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah is not just about Ezra and Nehemiah. It's paving the road for Jesus to come and change everything. And Jesus came to rebuild more than the walls of a city. He came to ransom and redeem and rebuild our hearts, which had been broken down by the crushing weight of sin. And maybe even now you feel that brokenness and that crushing weight of sin. Jesus came for that. See, Nehemiah wasn't the end of the story. For the people of God, Messiah was coming. And guess what? Your story's not over either. Sometimes we get in a situation and we think our current situation is final. And sometimes it looks like this is all we can see. And so we get discouraged because we should be further along or we think this or we think that. But listen to me, where you are right now is not where you're going to end. Your story isn't over yet. Because there is a Messiah. There is another chapter. And Jesus gets the final word in the final chapter.